Welcome to I'd Rather Stay In with your hosts, Megan Myers and Steffi Predmore. This week, we're talking about art as resistance with our special guest, Ruth Poor. Stay tuned. Do you love listening to I'd Rather Stay In and want to support the podcast? Well, now you can. Visit our website or the link in our Instagram profile and click buy me a coffee or visit buymeacoffee.com slash IRSI podcast. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can help us cover the costs of creating this podcast. There are no monthly memberships and you can support us at whatever level you like, whenever you like. Whether you buy us one coffee, many coffees, or simply continue listening as always, we're so grateful for your support. Hi, Steffi. It's been a while. It has been a while. We had a nice little summer vacation. We did have a nice little summer vacation. You actually went on a little vacation. Yeah, we just went to Arkansas, which is where we go, I guess, now every year. It's kind of our our thing that we do. We meet up with some friends from Texas, and all our families hang out together in a rental house, and it's really fun. Well, and then you and Bob went to Vegas. Yeah, I forgot (laughs) She forgot about your couple's trip to Vegas. Uh, yeah, we went to Las Vegas for our anniversary, and you helpfully watched my children. I did. And um, I we forced in... them to eat. It was yes, bizarre. They're a whole thing. Um, we went and ate at all the places, and uh, it was fun and relaxing. And Roy Choi was... like nodded at you or waved at you or something, right? Uh, he gave me like the the like, like head nod. The head like. Because he was like, so what happened was, okay, so we went to Best Friends restaurant that Roy Choi owns in Las Vegas, and he was at, he was there at, in the kitchen. Uh-huh. And, um. Which Alex was very impressed by, by the way. That he was there, or that he yeah, nodded that at he me? Was, that he was there. <laughs> I mean, both. Yeah. But primarily that he was there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the people that were sitting on one side of us, like, were people who, like, worked in the restaurants they were like restaurant people for vegas like at Mm -hmm. other hotels so like they kind of knew they're like seeing people you know like when alex goes to a restaurant he knows like all the people um and so like one of the ladies that was there like knows him and apparently well the other people at the table who is not a restaurant person it was her birthday so like she got them to come over Got him to come over, and he, like, took a picture with that person. (laughs) And then he just kind of, like, made his way around the restaurant, basically. And so he, like, came over past our table, and I was – we were, like, Bob and I were talking. And so he, like, kind of waved, and I did, like, a smile nod thing at him. But then he took a picture at the table next to us on the other side. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And then he just kind of, like, went through the rest of the restaurant. It was cute. Um – I'm not the kind of person that would be like, I need to take a picture with the chef. I know, same. Uh, um, but it was cool, yeah. It was nice. And his food was really good. Um, and it, it was like a lot of food. We got the chef's like tasting menu situation. Uh-huh. So we could try as many different things as possible. And it was so much food. I am pleased by all of this because, well, this came up in conversation with Alex think when we were I think when we were up in Wisconsin for the fourth because we were talking about how so often like now like celebrity chef restaurants like half like 99% of the time they're not there the food isn't that great like they've just gotten so like overhyped Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, Megan and Bob actually went to Roy Choi's place in Vegas, and he was there, and she said the food was really good. So I was like a nice little, like, there's still some of them that are good. <laughs> <laughs> I think, too, I think part of it is that he got famous from food trucks. Yeah. So I think that might have a little bit more to do with it, because you're, like, more in the in the, like, people facing trenches when right. you like run food trucks and also yes. i i remember eating at one of his food trucks like a thousand years ago at a food blogging conference where they brought all these food trucks in and the koji truck was one of them there Back so before it was cool oh man like a million yeah so long ago <laughs> um but it definitely his restaurant had been recommended to me by lots of people but also before it had even opened. I knew that it was coming, and I knew that I wanted to go there. So yeah. 
I was really happy that like it lived up to my expectations. So yes, yes, that would have been a bummer if it hadn't. So I was yes, I was happy that you guys had a good experience. Also, they serve a variety of boozy slushes. So <laughs> I do love that. I do. I had I do an enjoy. orange creamsicle boozy slush, and it was fantastic. Ooh, they've been working on a boozy orange creamsicle out at the restaurant the restaurant that I work at um, mm-hmm. for brunch, and. I've gotten to taste a couple of the like iterations along the way, and I was, have not been mad about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're t- you're uh, you're you're tweaking the orange creamsicle recipe and and, and testing that again. Uh, I think oh, I need no, to taste I have that. To taste it. I think I yeah, I need to taste a little bit just to see. Ah, yeah. yeah, love that, love that. Yeah, that's what I like to do in Las Vegas is go to the spa and eat food. So. That's absolutely fair. I was telling you that I know someone that was in Vegas, like right before you and then like kind of overlapping you and cause her, she like followed her husband there on a business trip. And so while he was working, she just, she went to the craft store, got a bunch of crocheting stuff and like sat by the pool and crocheted and then basically did the same thing. Like went to the spa, got some food about the time all the like gamblers came out from their hangovers. <laughs> I was like, that's, I could do that. That sounds that sounds doable. Yeah. I tried to that think about how many people dope. are there around you. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely not. That's too much. <laughs> that was too much. This was also your first time flying since the before times, right? No. Uh, Reese and I went to Austin in Oh, that's in March. right. I that one, that when we went in March, I remember being very anxious about it. That's right. Um, it wasn't <clears> as bad this time, but the first time I remember I was like so anxious yeah yeah that that uh, i still have it i still have not flown so i'm like ah, picking a, <laughs> a friend up at the airport uh later today and even though i'm just like airports what i don't what uh, anyway um, at least we have so, a small airport so it's not a problem i know that is very helpful i can just like pull up and i live like two seconds from it so i can be like hey did your plane land all right here i go here i am pick you up at 10 o'clock at night. Um, so today's episode that we're going to get into, uh, I don't know if anyone's been paying attention to the news, but it fucking sucks. Um, Tiny so, bit. <laughs> just, like a, just like a small bit. Uh, so out of our, our, our feminist rage, uh, we, have, we have decided to tackle today's topic. <laughs> <laughs> So there are many things that we can think of as acts of resistance in this day and age, but we tend to forget that for thousands and thousands of years, art has been used as a form of protest and resistance. So to give us her insights on this topic, today we are joined by painter, art professor, and my baby cousin, Ruth Elpor. Welcome, Ruth. Hi, everybody. Hi, Ruth. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. Um, like, uh, Steffi just said, um, I, my name is Ruth. Um, I'm an art professor in the Chicago area. I live in Aurora. Um, I've been working as an artist, uh, for, I would say at least 16 years now. I've always been attracted to the arts, um, in terms of art as resistance or, uh, its application to political matters. Um, That's something that I've been really interested in more recently. Um, Also activated, as you said, through some sort of uh, feminist rage. Um, (laughs) Definitely uh, over the last few years, it's um, built up a bit more in my mind and uh, what I can do in my own, um, in my own art practice and how I can engage with my community community in a meaningful uh, sort of meaningful sort of way. Um, I teach at SAIC, so the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, and I, yeah, that's just a little bit about me. I graduated from there with my MFA um, in May. So I uh, am now going around and teaching there. So they can't get rid of me. Ha. <laughs> Even if they tried. Uh, So before we like fully dive into this topic, um, I'd love for you to tell everybody about 
you know, your own background and personal history with art. Obviously, we're cousins. We're first cousins. We're eight months apart. We grew up together, basically like sisters. Um, so I sure know a lot. I know that like from the time you could hold a fucking pencil in your hand that everyone was like, oh my God, Liz, the talent. Um, <laughs> so, I, but I would love for you to just kind of give the listeners a little bit more background in 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 your own art history sure um yeah i definitely started drawing and uh, when i was very young um i think i just had a difficult time like a lot of artists fitting in and there's something that's comforting about the somewhat hermetic practice of drawing or reading or, you know, something like that. So I've always been attracted to the, um, the relationship you can have with the paper or with some sort of medium. And I think it's a very intimate, um, and rewarding practice, um, whether it be drawing or quilting or embroidery or uh, whatever you choose to do, um, I think it can be a really rewarding practice. And so I've always been um, attracted to it for that reason. And yeah, as I got older, I mean, I definitely got some attention from the family, um, but it was something that even as I became more interested in other areas, I eventually went to undergrad for religious studies. Um, I couldn't quite shake away my, um, that, that art bug. So I've always, uh, been trying to challenge myself as an artist, uh, you know, growing up and it was something that I just couldn't get away from. Um, in terms of activism, that's something that's happened within the past few years um, within my own art practice as well. Um, so it's it's something that's just grown with me. Um, I've I don't I can't think of a period of time that I've I don't know lived without having art in my life, and so it's very important for me, even in a spiritual sense and. So, admitting to be a spiritual person is kind of new for me. Um, and I'm, I, I, I welcome that reading. I, I don't know. I just can't think of a time that I've not had art in my life. It's, it's always been there. It's always been something that I could do. Um, sometimes it's escapist, but escapism I think is kind of problematic now um in terms of how political everything is so mm -hmm. i've started to make a turn in trying to make that hermetic practice be something that's not so readily selfish not saying that it is selfish to do something for yourself but um i i personally just find that there's a lot of history and privilege tied up in art. And so there's part of me that also wants to acknowledge that as well as acknowledging the history that art can act as resistance. So there's this sort of dual edged sword that I think arts had throughout all of time. When was the first time that you really thought of art as a form of resistance? Was there a specific tipping point or was it more of a gradual shift? I think um, it happened probably pretty quickly. Um, and it was when I went through my post-bac program at SAIC, which is a one-year program uh, for people like me who didn't go to art school um, that were a bit more maybe self-taught. Um, and eventually you go in, you take the uh the, this program for a year and it sort of jump starts you to get ready to apply to grad school. A lot of uh, medical schools have these programs, but it's kind of newer in the arts to have that. So there is a large push to find artists that are from other backgrounds um, and trying to uh, integrate them into the art scene to make this really rich uh sort of 
area that crosses between uh, like my friend who went to school at MIT for mathematics. Uh, I just graduated with them. Um, it, I, I mean, it's just such a diverse program and how you're able to shape yourself. Uh, but being around all of these different people, I was really able to see on a very large scale how different types of art making could be used as a form of resistance, which I had never thought, even really thought of before. Um, and a lot of my art history classes as well. Um, I remember one of my first, uh, I think maybe people I was inspired by that I learned of was Corita Kent, who's a nun from the 70s, who created really fantastic posters in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, and helped build uh, an active community um, around the time also Martin Luther King was alive, knew him very well, knew Gandhi very well. Um, she uh, really inspired me, um, even though I uh, am not like a strictly religious person, I definitely look toward religious people um, in how they create, in part because they have hermetic practices that I can relate to, but also because um, they're trying to actively engage in their communities in a way that's somewhat foreign to me. I grew up in rural Indiana and there really just <laughs> isn't a big art community there. Um, as Stephanie I mean, might know you, growing up in Attica. Really, right, unless you like really enjoy paintings of covered bridges, which are lovely. Hey, I got a nice one out there, you know. <laughs> right, but that's like kind of it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I, it, it happened, I think, pretty quickly um, in a relative sense. It um, was definitely started because I was engaged in a really rich art community and being exposed to all these ideas that I hadn't before. So it was very important for me uh, to make that sort of movement through um, a community-based practice. So then how would you say that art has served as an act of protest in your own life? And like, as you kind of think about it, do you feel like perhaps art was serving that purpose before you, in your own life, before you even were truly cognizant of it? Yeah. And that was something, you know, it was, that was actually a really big question we had in one of my seminars. Um, when I was in grad school, one of the questions that was posed to us is, how do you resist? And that was the question that we were left with at the beginning of the semester. And over the semester, we uh, sort of answered it in our own ways. And in my own practice, um, I, I, I've sort of broken it up into different sections. I'm still building um, myself as an artist, um, I feel like I could probably say that for the rest of my my life. I was going to say, I feel building like that's myself. a lifelong journey, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you realize you how much you don't know at some point. There's at some point you realize you're like, oh my god, there's just such a big world out there. Um, I can I can probably do this the rest of my life and still not know everything, uh, which is exciting, uh, but also a little daunting. Yeah, I think um, it was definitely doing it uh, before before I was really aware of it, it I was able to transition um, pretty quickly. And I think that's why, because I already was acting in resistance, not knowing it. Um, and I, I guess I shouldn't say that totally. I can be a very contrary person. I'm like, oh, like I, I don't know. I, I can definitely be, <laughs> I resistant personality. Um, I would not fare well in like the army, for example. No, um, I absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Um, but in my own practice, I think it's, I, some of the, I was, when I was preparing for this podcast, I was going through finding artists that uh, inspire me and they have all these really grand, um, you know, sort of operations, but mine isn't, at least when it comes to resistance, I don't think of it as being as grand as it is practical. 
um, which I'm hoping that leaving the podcast today, listeners understand that there's such a wide range of art and the multiplicity and the forms that it can take. Um, in my own practice, what I think is resistant is the time that it takes me to create something. Um, we live in a very, very immediate and hyper-sensationalized culture, um, at least in where I live in Chicago in the United States. Um, I don't know where all of your listeners are from, but in this area of the country, as in many areas of the country, there's uh, this push of under the guise of progressiveness um, to constantly be engaged, to constantly be producing, to be working, to be a cog in some sort of machine, which sounds like I just pulled that from like a Pink Floyd album. But <laughs> it really, it's this, uh, that we're supposed to be constantly operating and creating in order for us to have some sort of merit or worth. And for me, taking time away from uh, industrialist production or from uh, any sort of capitalist system, taking time and slowing down, I think is at ends to what capitalism tries to push. And so even when I come home, there are things that I could be doing for work, there could be other things that I'm doing, but taking time to rest and restore in itself is an act of resistance against capitalist systems. Um, I, I think that. Um, I think we're told not to rest. We're told that we need to constantly be producing. And so I think it's very, very important for us um, spiritually as people to be able to have those points of rest and to be able to have that release where we're carving out room for ourselves to live and think authentically. Um, and I think that's very important for us to all be able to do as we start moving forward and to question all of those things that we're doing. Art making for me allows me to question um, the things I'm dealing with in my life. And I'm able to sort of put that out on a canvas um, or in a sculpture, whatever I'm making, um, or a piece of writing and to be able to go through and even parse that later. We're in such a reactionist um, or a reactionary kind of system of socializing with one another. I think it's at ends with even our socializing practices to take time and to practice in letter writing or all of these other things that uh, really force us to slow down. Um, so in my own practice, that's how I think of, I think of art as resistance, um, just in a, in a smaller scale, something that we can all do. I love that. I love that. Why do you think that art is particularly a powerful type of activism and protest? Um, that's a hard, I think that's a hard question to answer. I think part of it is based on the fact that we're such visual people. Um, throughout history, art has been used as a means to communicate. Um, if you're, if we want to swing real, you know, you know, something that's representational, political, and old, I'm thinking ancient Rome, using sculptures to um, even just acknowledge presence of leaders in areas or um, how art is used to um, communicate the, the threats of war. Um, throughout history, art has been used on both sides of the political spectrum as means to either be sometimes abolitionist and sometimes it's used um, in poster creation. Um, so there's this dual-edged sword throughout history of art making and representation as both being something that can be seen as resistance, but can also be seen 
as um, a creator of strife and war. Um, so I think it's important going through art, understanding art history, history just in general is I, <laughs> I was not a big history buff growing up. I didn't have the best history teachers. I think that might've been why, but now I'm very into history other than just art history. Um, and I, I don't know, it's, it's just really interesting to see how both sides of it can be used. And in a more contemporary sense, I think of uh, art used as um, commercialization um, mm. or art being used in all these different ways that drive us to do things that we aren't even really sure why we're doing it. Uh, that's why there are so many case studies being like, well, this should be this color because you're more likely to buy something if it's in this certain shade of red. You have all these uh, focus groups that are set up to um, go through all of our responses and to see what our gut reactions are in a way to trick us into buying something or a way to trick us into believing something. Uh, like how propaganda operates. I don't want to say that there's a really tight fuse between those two things, but there is a connection. Um, and so I think um, it's important to acknowledge both of those things um, when understanding the history of art as resistance is that there's just, um, as my uh, one of my advisors, I had Lauren Vaughn, who's uh, a really amazing artist. One of her famous quotes is, uh, artists need to create on the same scale that society has the capacity to destroy. Mm. Um, Ooh, wow. And so, yeah, she, she's, she's really fantastic. She's um, purchased uh, a parcel of land uh, and water in California, part of their waterways gifted it back to a collective of indigenous communities and they've been using that parcel of land to uh, push back against policy uh, that pollutes rivers in California. So we have collectives that are now trying to purchase land in order to create it a non-hostile environment. Um, so she does, so that, so she does something on a very large scale and quite like literally purchases land. Uh, so her art acts as policy, um, her art acts as relationships, as community, as resistance, as activism, um, it acts as all of these things. Um, and it's really, it's really interesting, but you don't even, you don't have to be an artist like Lauren to practice resistance that way. Um, someone I, I really admire, her name's Marilee Ukeles, um, who's a New York City artist. She works for the New York City Department of Sanitation and she used her job to, in 1989 to transform a landfill into a park in Staten Island. Um, and so she used her job at the time as a sanitation worker and use what she had at her disposal in order to create um, space and existence that's non-toxic. Um, the more we start to read into uh, environmental racism, we realize how many landfills and toxic places are placed near uh, low-income communities. And then we wonder why there are, you know, so many cancer patients in certain areas of the country. We wonder why so many people are sick. Um, and it's, it's really not that much of a wonder. Um, sorry, I went off on a little bit of a tangent on a couple artists <laughs> no, I really like there, but this I, is fascinating. You I'm trying to going. think of, I'm trying to think of all these different artists that act as resistance in different ways and on different scale. Um, yeah. and so those are, those are people that I think of as resistance and people who inspire me even in, even though I, I, I don't work in that way, I wouldn't have the slightest idea of how to go about that type of policy um, for example, tomorrow I, I volunteer with the, uh, prison and neighborhood art project, 
uh, which is an abolitionist group. Um, I recently uh, completed a portraiture project with them, um, creating uh, images that are supposed to be counter to the carceral system. Um, so creating portraits that aren't entirely based off their mug shots. So I created several portraits of the graduating class for the University Without Walls program through Stateville um, and created these portraits of these men in ways that humanize them and remind us that there isn't an us versus them. There is or an inside or an outside. There is a community and they are still part of the community. And so trying to find ways to create like murals, for example, that the men inside have uh, designed. And then people that are in the free world are able to create because you're not really able to keep your artwork even post conviction uh, going, being returned into the free world. Um, you don't have, you're not even, able to keep your artwork. Um, it's kind of a side there, but for example, um, Stateville, part of uh, PNAP and some of the other Chicagoland uh, organizations, nonprofits are creating um, an area of land that's right next to Stateville that they also purchased that we're creating a seed quilt for tomorrow. Um, so using indigenous plant life, um, along with um, a lot of other wildflowers to create a landscape um, that can be actually viewed from the prison and is something that you're greeted with upon leaving the prison, that there's some sort of hope involved. Um, so, and, and that's done with a collective of artists and abolitionists. That's incredible. You know, I think that there's, I think there's something to say too about how, like, there are, there, there are um, pieces of art, like you're talking about that are, that are very overt in their protestations. Um, mm -hmm. And then, but, it, you know, I think that's interesting because it can be sneaky too. And I think about when I think about this, I think about um, a lot of the artists in Spain during the Spanish Civil War mm -hmm. and how so many of them were imprisoned simply for creating. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I think about um, Picasso, who, you know, <laughs> has his own issues, but um, everyone <laughs> thought that he was just a fucking weirdo with his art. Like, they didn't understand what the fuck he was doing with his art. And so when, um, when, they bombed Guernica and he painted about it like he his painting if you understand what the painting is it's literally screaming at you about this atrocity that happened mm -hmm. but he did it and you know he used his his cubist style that everyone was like oh he's a fucking weirdo and so the people that he was like screaming about didn't get it they were like yeah that guy's just weird i don't know this is just a weird painting um and so i've always found that found it so interesting how like if you get it it, it just screams it at you and if you're not supposed to get it you're just like huh i don't know yeah that's one of the things that i really love about art and art history is that mm -hmm. like it's subjective and also like it can have that subtlety where some like two same two people could be looking at a picture and one person will totally get it and the other person will just be like eh, it's a picture but looks nice i don't know yeah it's a painting. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite thing to do at like any art museum or any place where there's art if i am looking at art and i just see something that makes me stop mm -hmm. and stare at it I don't, there's just something about art that I like so much about that. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of artists definitely try to strive for. It's definitely what Picasso would have wanted with Guernica is for you to stop and acknowledge the atrocities that are happening. Or, um, I mean, 
damn, yeah, I'd love for people, I love when people stop and ask questions about my artwork or if I'm around and I can help, you know, ask mm -hmm. or answer questions, like if I have a show or whatnot, but most of the time your art is away from you. You don't have, um, as an artist, you're not gonna be standing next to your art piece the rest of your life. And we're told that a lot um, while we're in school too is to be conscious of the fact that this artist really becomes its own thing once it leaves you. Like it becomes something that people can interpret, that it becomes like you can plan as much ahead as you want to, <laughs> but people are still going to take their own readings from their artwork, depending on their background and their understandings of whatever, you know, subject matter it is. Um, yeah, and Guernica is such a powerful painting, in part two because of its scale. It's a huge painting. Um, oh, it's so big. I don't think I've ever sat and just in front of a piece of art and just studied it longer than I have with Guernica. It's one of my favorites. It's a really powerful piece that way, in part because the also the subjects are about life size, if not a little bit more. And so there becomes this very eerie uh, parallel that happens whenever you see a subject that's life size. Um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of religious paintings really hinge on that too. Um, especially um, there, there are several I can think of in the Art Institute as well. Um, I'm trying to think of there's a Titian painting I'm thinking of specifically. Um, and it's an uh, it's an altarpiece painting that's set closer to the floor where the figures are life size, and it's meant to be something that could be like, oh, I could walk into this portal of a painting. Um, so it it, it kind of helps with that scale. I spend a lot of time. I, I spend a lot of time in the literary world, um, and you know I see how there are uh, <clears throat> we'll call them certain subsets of people who would really like to skew any political connection with their favorite art forms. And in the literary world, like we see how so many of our favorite stories are inherently political. So some mm -hmm. examples would be, you know, Lord of the Rings, Hunger Games, the Marvel comics, Harry Potter, the turf notwithstanding. Um, so sort of thinking in this vein, do you think that it is possible to have good art that is not inherently political in some way um i think it can be difficult to do um i think the more you work abstractly and non-objectively and push away from representation it's easier to get away from that but unlike that's where I think a lot of uh, like paintings, for example, can and a lot of the uh, fine arts kind of break off from the literary arts is that a lot of literary arts tend to work within our own world or within our own understandings of how um, things operate. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, It's difficult not to work representationally and for it not to be inherently political. Mm -hmm. um, I think, for example, if I'm going to do a literary example of this, it would be where the crawdads sing. Mm -hmm. um, I can't think of her name right now. Uh, she's under a lot of fire, as she should be. Um, the woman who wrote where the crawdads sing is Julia a, Owens. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Julia um, has been under some fire recently in part because of her representations of black people as being racist within the book um, because she herself is a white woman who is creating a story with black characters, but they're ones that she has made and given a dialogue to. Mm -hmm. um, I think of it being... Um, 
problematic for a lot of reasons. Um, and uh, she also, like, I did some research on her recently because we are thinking about it as being like a book club book that we would read, but uh, we ended up deciding against it because she has a history also of writing another book about how a really racist book about people of sub-Saharan Africa when she lived there for like a short, short period of time. Um, and so it's- Love that journey. Yeah, love that. Um, and so it's, it's difficult for someone to create a story uh, written about someone that's not or writing about someone that's not you and then profiting off of it afterward um mm -hmm. i think is what's especially problematic is her profiting off of her stereotyping um there it, it becomes something different when you're creating artwork versus when you're profiting off your artwork and that's purely symptomatic of being in a capitalist system i don't think there's anything wrong trying to uh live off of your art practice it's something that i try to do and every artist tries to do um, but when you're making money off of that type of misrepresentation um that's where i think you know, things start to get pretty problematic. Um, it's the same with, um, gosh, I'm not doing too good with names today. Um, who wrote Game of Thrones? Um, George R. Martin. Thank yeah. you. It's the same thing with all of the rape scenes as well. You have this mm -hmm. really powerful, rich white man that's kind of relishing in writing all of these rape scenes not to say that he's relishing in it like i i don't i would hope at least that you don't get too much comfort from writing about things like that but it becomes again problematic that you have this man writing a fantasy story that all of this violence takes place within the um within the realm of that story and again, it's because you're working with characters and working representationally too. Um, so I, I personally, it's, it's a really hard question for me to answer. I'm sure I, if I really sat down and thought about it, I could think of some good examples of, um, you know, who might, you know, come to mind, but really all I can think is problematic people right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting, too, because, like, you know, when you're talking about, like, when we are talking about, like, um, literature or we're talking about film or, you know, anything like that that um, is a little bit more of an art form that larger populations are digesting and taking mm -hmm. in. Like, I think you're right, like, with, uh, with like, painting, photography, sculpture, like any of those sorts of um, art, like you can get really abstract and nobody's like, gosh, that's, I mean, that's weird, like whatever. But um, if you get too far off of what you, what the general populace understands in books or in movies, then everyone's like, well, that was just fucking weird. Like, why did that, why did that win an Oscar? Why did mm -hmm. that, why was that even in theaters? Like, I don't understand that. I, I like, I remember when, um, yeah. Shape of Water won the one oh, best picture yeah. and everyone was like, that's a fucking weird movie. And I was like, I don't know. I kind of liked it. I love Shape of Water. <laughs> it was really beautiful. It was one yeah. of the most visually beautiful movies I've ever seen. And like, did I fully get it? Like, no, but I'm also like, I don't know that I was supposed to. Like, I don't know. I just, yeah. I, I just kind of enjoyed it. And so I, I think of things like that where like, you, there's this there's this uh, this sort of no man's land that certain mm -hmm. mediums of art can go into that others can't um, mm. just because of the way that people like if if those artists want to be quote successful like I suppose yeah like, I'm, sh I'm sure there are tons of writers and filmmakers who you know I think of like indie filmmakers and writers who are who are publishing under like indie presses and things like that that are just writing and doing the things that they love and they don't really care if the masses pick it up or not in fact mm -hmm. they would probably prefer that the masses didn't pick it up um but 
yeah, I think that I think that when we're, you know because those are like art forms that are su- quote supposed to be like wildly like widely circulated, mm-hmm. there we get this like well it needs to be something that we can see ourselves in. I yeah. mean, have you read House of Leaves? <laughs> <laughs> that is like my prime example of a book that like is total art form book. Yes. Because <laughs> like. It's, and I it's think you're, that's something interesting, too, um, and it's one reason I tend to work representationally in my own work. I haven't talked about exactly what I paint or anything. I think that's very hard for me to describe what I create, uh, but I do work with figuratively, um, and because of that, I'm very constantly um, engaging in a political realm. Um, and so it's something that I don't really stray away from. I'm kind of, it, it's a, it's a, it's a family thing. Steffi knows we're opinionated people and I would rather be, um, I would rather be wholly honest and upfront in order to learn something or to shape myself than I guess why to myself. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, listeners know like I can't that. even tell someone their baby is cute if it's not true. So, like, <laughs> the, if they're figuring like hey, we're related, then they're already following. Oh, okay. Do you, do you call people's babies ugly, Stephanie? No, <laughs> no. no, I just don't tell them that their baby is cute if it's not true. I say oh, things okay. like, "Oh, look, they're they so have smart, such tiny toes." <laughs> Like you just say a fact. Yeah, if you just say a fact in the right tone of voice, they think that you're telling them that their baby is cute when really your brain is going, oh my God, that baby looks like an alien. This is not okay. That's Um, smart because that's what I straight up say. So um, that's that's much much smarter. I like that. I will steal the cute toes. I did work in PR for a while. Uh, Great job. Yeah. Yeah, apparently my customer service skills uh, never really kicked in. They just... It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. What are some of your own personal favorite pieces of art that are or were politically inspired? Um, I talked about Lauren's work. Um, that quote I gave about Lauren, there's a giant neon piece of that. Her quote, artists need to create on the same scale that society has the capacity to destroy, uh, is a giant neon sculpture, like billboard size. Um, and I, I, I love that. Uh, most of the artists that I look at politically are not painters. Um, And it's not that painters or other fine artists don't work politically. It's just, there's something that's, I think, really impactful about operating within systems of policy. Um, It gets outside of the art bubble in a way that really fascinates me. Um, Marilee Ukeles, like I said before, who is the New York City sanitation worker, um, I think her conceptual art and her process as domestic and civic maintenance is really interesting to me. Um, someone who I've been reading recently, I, I decided there, I know you guys are, you like books, so I pulled out some <laughs> books. Um, one of the, a poet who I've actually been reading quite a bit of is Reginald Dwayne Betts. Um, he came out with a book of poems, uh, under the book title Felon. And there's, he was incarcerated for a long period of time, um, and has all these really impactful poems. But what I find most interesting and visually stunning are these redaction poems that, um he creates um i really i'll try to explain it but it's essentially uh the civil rights corps got him a bunch of legal documents based on uh like bail and um a lot of these um like just jail sentencing sort of level not necessarily for prison um but uh this redaction poetry 
as um, there are four poems in his collection, all based in different states, and they're legal documents that um, the Civil Rights Corps filed to challenge the incarceration of people because they can't afford to pay bail. Um, so the poems use redaction not as a way to block out the knowledge, uh, but as a technique that reveals like the drama and the injustice of the system um, that makes people simply a reflection of their bank accounts. And so there's really powerful um, just ways in which the marking is done. Um, so I would really recommend that if anyone's interested in poetry or abolition, um, any of those things, I would highly recommend uh, Felon by Reginald Dwayne Betts. Um, so those are some artists I think that I was thinking of. I was just kind of scribbling down before we sat down. <laughs> um that that really inspire me i love that if uh if any of our listeners want to follow along with your own work how can they do that um i only do one social media now i uh <laughs> am an instagram person i didn't think i would be one but art school has turned me into an instagram person so i am uh at ruth l poor um, if they want to follow me and I've got more information uh, that's sort of seated in my Instagram page. Love it. And yeah, you, you recently just posted a couple new pieces that you did. Yeah. Um, one of which I like, I, I seriously cannot stop looking at out of the garden. Like I, it is maybe my favorite. <gasps> it's maybe my favorite that you've ever done. Really? Thank you. Seriously, I cannot stop looking at it. I love it. That one, I, I was so, I was questioning whether I liked, I liked the color relationships of that one. And there's some fun glitter things and embroidery I did that I really liked, but it was, I don't know. I was like, I was a little worried about it, but I'm glad, I'm really glad to hear you say that. No, I love it. I love it. So, uh, so yeah, we will link, we will link to your Instagram in the show notes and, uh, on our our own Instagram, so if you guys are interested, uh, go give go give my little cousin a follow. Um, I almost called you Liz again, Ruth. I know we're like grown, and you're supposed to be going by your real name now, Ruth. Hey, I leave um, that L. I leave that L dot in there for a reason. Um, <laughs> it's for it's for all the slip ups. <laughs> and, it's for all uh, the slip ups. <laughs> I uh, you know what? My sister tried to call me Ruth the other day and no, I backhanded weird. her. I was like, what the fuck did you just say to me? And she was like, Absolutely. uh, Liz. It's <laughs> like, that's right. You don't call me Ruth. Absolutely not. No, Absolutely no, 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 no. not. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and, and teaching us. And this was so interesting. Um, I always love hearing you talk about what you do because it's so, it's so different from what I do. Um, and so it just, it brings me so much joy to hear you talk about it. So thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. Um, let's all share what's bringing us joy right now. Uh, Liz, you go first. Oh, definitely my cats are bringing me joy right now. I have two cats and they comfort me all the time when I come home. One's a little rag doll and he just kind of lays there. So, um, he break, <laughs> he, he, he's, just lays in my arms. He's, he's my little baby. Um, so he brings me joy. My cats bring me joy right now. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, Cora got her fucking ass locked in Eden's bedroom closet when we were gone over the <gasps> July weekend. The whole oh no! Weekend. This is not the, the first time she's done it. This she's done it before, also over Fourth of July weekend, but that was like five years ago. And she, like, I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Like, I came because we took the dogs with us, and so like Megan usually would come check on the house, and she didn't because we had the dogs. And so he came home and I was like, where's Cora? Like, I don't see her around. And then I just hear this, meow, meow. And I was like, you stupid shithead. 
Like, I, like, let her out, and she was just, I mean, she was fine. She was just, like, pissed. I was like, well, you know what? This is what you get for being sneaky and sneaking into closets and every open door you see. So don't be a sneaky shithead. So I'm glad that your cats are bringing you joy because that she really annoyed me in that moment. She really brought you grief. (laughs) She really brought me grief. A man, what a shithead. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Megan, what's bringing you joy? Um, let's see. I, I'm trying to think of something better than what I have, but I, I don't really have anything <laughs> right mm-hmm. now. Um, I got a new microphone, so hopefully uh, it sounds better than previously. And it's a it's actually a gamer microphone. Nice so it too. lights up in rainbow colors while I am using it. Ooh. And I've just been staring at it like the whole time because it just like <laughs> – it just go like right now it's green and now it's flowing into yellow and purple and then it goes into blue and it's but very now pretty I want to that. look at. I know. Mine is, it's, mine is perfectly it's... serviceable, but now I want the one that has the rainbow colors. <laughs> <laughs> this is, no, I'm jealous. Oh, the other thing, I actually remember something that I wanted, that I talked to you about yesterday. Um, we watched the show Baymax on Disney+. Plus. Yesterday, uh, it's just like little short cartoons. They're only like 11 minutes long, which was slightly disappointing that they were so short. But each episode, Baymax, the character from Big Hero 6, like a inflatable health care person, robot, um, he helps a different person. And in one of the episodes, he helps a girl who gets her period for the first time. And the way that they dealt with it in the show is just delightful and lovely and it made me think of turning red as well and also made me wonder why we didn't have such lovely and delightful ways to talk about our periods when I was in middle school because that would have been nice would have been great (laughs) uh but they just treat it like how normal it is um but they also like address like she's scared about it and nervous and everything and he goes to the store to like buy products and all these people are really helpful and it's very cute and adorable. And uh, yeah, Kathleen was, saying, I like, really one appreciate of the people, it. Kathleen was saying like one of the people he talks to is, uh, is a trans man, I think too, or something. Yes. Is that right. So I yes. lo- like, I love, I love that representation in there as well. Yeah. It's great. It's um, great. I don't know. I don't know who's over there working on these smaller, projects i guess um both like the the turning red team and the the baymax team but there's definitely people there that are like look we need to talk about these things and put them in charge of more shit yeah it's not just singing princesses anymore it's great i love it how can we get them in charge of just more things not yeah i mean they have a lot of other problems going on over there but like there there are people trying to do the things yes get those get those people we need more of them that's amazing yeah i love that so much stephanie Um, what about you so uh, we went up to Wisconsin to spend uh, the 4th of July weekend with Eden's birth family uh, last weekend. And um, or I guess a couple weekends ago now when this airs. Um, and so Eden's birth mom, cows are her favorite animal. And so we ditched the kids and we ditched the husbands. And I surprised her with a tour of the dairy farm while we were up there and it was actually it was like one of those where i literally googled i was like cow petting with cousin <laughs> i was like man i would really that like could go, go so many ways <laughs> literally uh i was like i really think it would be fun to go pet some cows with taylor <laughs> and i ended up finding this dairy farm that was like pretty close to where they live it was like 40 minutes away and it actually ended up being a delight um and the lady that is like the co-owner of the farm it's like her husband's parents farm that they inherited and she does these tours as a way to like bring in extra income and help educate and she used to be a teacher like in a classroom setting and now she's you know a dairy farmer Um, but just the way that she was teaching and all of the stuff she was talking about like we learned so much and we learned so much about um, the industry and you know how they um, 
how COVID affected them and like, I don't know. And we got to bottle feed a one day old uh, bull calf. And I thought that Taylor was just going to die and go to heaven in that moment. He was so sweet. And also it was very funny because we were there. There was like the two of us. And then there were these two other families who were definitely just like normal human beings who were like I think this sounds like an interesting thing to do but we're also a little bit out of their element and then you had Taylor and I who were like asking all of the questions and we were like super into it and we that when we got the chance to like kind of cuddle and pet the cows we were like oh my god this is the best thing ever and we were like didn't care if we got dirty and then they were like got snot on us we were like bring it on we were like practically making out with these these beautiful cows um so anyway it was absolutely delightful and we had a great it was like one of the best times i've had in a while and i learned a lot so it's just like such a nerdy little time it was great <laughs> that's adorable so, yeah if you are in the like kind of uh southern wisconsin sort of central southern wisconsin i guess that would be area hinchley's uh dairy farm is delightful and apparently if you go in the fall they also they have pumpkin they have like a, they grow a pumpkin patch so that the little kids that come on the tours can all get a free pumpkin so because she was like you should come back with your kids in the fall and get a pumpkin uh, I was like oh my god the kids would just die uh, they would love seeing the animals so anyway that was that <laughs> I love it uh, so next week we are going to talk about aliens. So until then, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and listen to us on your favorite platform. You can also follow us on social media at IRSI Podcast or send us an email at I'd rather stay in podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Bye.